there, Dreamfinder here. <clears throat> Sorry, Ron Schneider here, and you're listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 50 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. Wow, we have made it to 50 episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Because you're listening, I've been able to interview some pretty amazing people and bring you what I hope are interesting and valuable interviews. This time, no exception. In this episode, we begin our two-part interview with Sam Genoway. Sam is an author, speaker, Disney historian, and we had a wonderful and pretty wide-ranging conversation. I listened to several hours of interviews with Sam in preparation for this one, and I can honestly tell you that we talked about a few things that I have never heard him cover in any other interview. This one marks the first show where my guest has never actually worked for Disney, but is or has done something with their passion for Disney to share with others. In this case, writing books. I'm excited as we expand the format and scope of Stories of the Magic. In this episode, Sam talks about what an urban planner is, particularly the kind he is. His involvement with the Glendale Hyperion Bridge, which is represented in Disney California Adventure, and what he thinks of Buena Vista Street. How he became interested in Disneyland. Christopher Alexander's pattern language and how it manifests itself in Disneyland. How Sam uses Disneyland to explain urban planning concepts to people. Disneyland as Walt's souvenir bucket from his travels. I'd never heard that description of it before, but it really makes a lot of sense. Why he decided to write Walt and the Promise of Progress City. The purpose of that first book. One of them being to help Disney fans intellectually explain to people who don't understand why we keep coming back. Sam's fascination with the Progress City model that used to be in the post-show area of the Carousel of Progress. Walt's vision for Epcot the City and Walt's interest in three-dimensional design. The idea behind the Mineral King Ski Resort. What a sense of place means and how it affects guests. Are the expectations people have for Disneyland unreasonably high? We talk about the answer to that question. Walt's three children, Sharon, Diane, and Disneyland. Why Sleeping Beauty Castle and the Matterhorn aren't visual contradictions, although you'd really expect them to be. The writing of Sam's second book, The Disneyland Story. A couple of things he had to cut from the book. And Bill Evans and a couple of interesting stories about some famous trees on the property. After the interview, I have some very exciting news to share about my newest book, Faith and the Magic Kingdom. We get to talk all about Sam's books during the interview, and we're going to talk just a little bit about mine at the end. But now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and begin this story. My name is Al. And I'm Joyce. And we're, we're huge, huge Disneyland, Disneyland fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much, we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on Earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast, we share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www. Talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make, make it, it a, a Mickey, Mickey day. day.
And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. I'm always excited to venture into new territory here on Stories of the Magic, so I'm looking forward to this interview. Sam Genoway is the author of two Disney-related books, Walt and the Promise of Progress City, and most recently, The Disneyland Story, the unofficial guide to the evolution of Walt Disney's dream. There's a lot I could tell you about him, so here's a select bit. He's an urban planner who's collaborated with communities throughout California over the course of more than 100 projects to create a great big beautiful tomorrow. His unique point of view and insights built on his passion for history, his professional training, and his obsession with theme parks have brought speaking invitations, most of which I assume he's accepted, from Walt Disney Imagineering, the Walt Disney Family Museum, Disney Creative, the American Planning Association, the California Preservation Foundation, the California League of Cities, and many Disneyana clubs, libraries, and podcasts. He's also a columnist for the popular Mice Chat website and has his own blog called Sam Land's Disney Adventures. We're going to get a fascinating and different perspective today. So, Sam, welcome to Stories of the Magic. Well, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. I I love your office. This is great. We're right on the edge of the rivers of America. So occasionally I think you'll be hearing the Mark Twain pass by us. What a lovely spot to have a talk. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I wanted to make sure to stake out a good office to to use for this. (laughs) So I mentioned in the introduction that you're an urban planner. That's right. So before we dive into the Disney topics, what is an urban planner? There's a lot. There's a lot of different varieties of urban planners, but uh, in my particular case, I tend to focus on uh, visions for cities, bringing the uh, people together to figure out where they want to be, how to get there, and then write the rules to get there. Uh, I do a lot of uh, large infrastructure projects, uh, dam sediment removal, transportation projects, master plans for colleges and and hospitals and things like that. Okay. And I think I remember speaking of projects that you've worked on that you uh, are working on or have worked on recently, um, the or actual bridge that's modeled in Disney California Adventure, the <laughs> yeah. Hyperion Bridge. Yeah, it is kind of strange occasionally how these things all come together. And one of the projects is the Glendale Hyperion Bridge, um, or it's called a viaduct actually because it's actually five bridges put together that crosses over the, the I-5 freeway. Uh, and also over the, the, the Los Angeles River, uh, and it happened to be very, very close to the Hyperion Studio. And so when they took away the Golden Gate Bridge at California Adventure, they wanted to replace it with something that was more iconic as an L.A. bridge. And my guess is that some young Imagineer drove underneath the bridge on the way to Burbank one day and went, that's it, that's it, it's close to Walt's old studio, so that would be the perfect bridge. So they, they modeled the bridge, but now having worked on the bridge project, we're going to retrofit it so it won't fall down during an earthquake. We're going to bring it back to its original Luster. The version that's a California Adventure is actually a modeled after a 1962 redo of the bridge, and it's not nearly as pretty as what the original bridge looks like. So hopefully maybe Disney will go back and they'll retrofit this once we finish with that project. I certainly hope so. I mean, they certainly went to a lot of trouble to bring Buena Vista Street up to what it is now compared to the old entry area. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I think going back and doing that at some time when they need to do a refurb, not out of the question. Yeah, yeah. and you know what, I will say as from an urban planner, one of the perspectives it gives me is I like looking at the physical place. And you're mentioning Buena Vista Street. I think Buena Vista Street, from an urban planner's point of view, is wonderfully, wonderfully well designed. There's lots of great places to sit, um, kind of own the space, watch people. It's so much better than what was there before. It tends to rival even Main Street over here at Disneyland. And I would say those are the two best public spaces that Disney's ever created so far. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, So how did you become interested in Disney, especially in Disneyland? You know, I had had asked my mom, because I was wondering why I was obsessed about this as well, and I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in Whittier, which is very close to here. I went to high school in Whittier. Oh, you did? Okay, very good. What school? California High School. Oh, very good. I went to Pioneer High School. Okay. All right, all right, all right. (laughs) Old homies. That's right. All right, so they tore down the football stadium at my whole high school. I noticed that the other day. So um, we grew up pretty close, and and as many people know, back in the day, I'm I'm as old as a mountain, if that helps any. I'm as old as the Matterhorn, so you guys can figure out the math. Um, Back in the day, what was really a big believer that his park should be available to everybody. So what he did is he had a very low admission rate, a very low general admission rate, and then you had to buy tickets and you bought food, and that's when coming here would be kind of expensive. So what my mom used to do is she used to bring myself and my two much older brothers to Disneyland, and she used to let them just go run around because it was a safe environment. I was much younger. I hung out with her. We never bought any tickets for the rides. We never bought any food in the park. We'd go out to the car and eat a picnic out of the trunk. 
But we could get in, and my mom loved it because it was a very safe, friendly environment. I loved it because it was a great place to hang out, and there were four free rides at the time. And uh, one of those was Carousel of Progress, another was Mr. Lincoln, Adventures Through Inner Space, and uh, the Circle Vision film. So those were the four rides we used to go on all the time because they were free. And I, I realized that we were doing that for as, my, as many as four to five years. And so coming here about once a month started seeping into my brain. And then when I uh, got became an urban planner, I would find inspiration at Disneyland. There was, you know, a lot of things were done really right here. And I was able to relate that to my urban planning career. And it turned out to be really a nice meshing, actually. Okay. So as you were doing the getting into your urban planner career, uh-huh. were you intentionally at first looking at Disney and saying, hey, here's what they did right at the parks, or as you were doing your urban planning and, and that work, did you start to just kind of, as you were building in principles and uh, you know different parts of the plan, start yeah. recognizing, wait, I, maybe I got this from Main Street or something? That's a good question. I, you know, I think it's a little bit of a combination of both. I think what it was was I, I, I became professionally trained, went to school, understood, and I'm a big fan of a guy named Christopher Alexander who wrote a book called A Pattern Language. And, and, and the connection for me was his idea of urban planning is based on empirical research. Basically, look at the places that you love and then document what it is about it that you love so that you can create ways of reproducing it in other places. And I, and I had learned that Walt Disney was the same way. You know, he traveled quite a bit. And he would run around, and his, his daughter Diane told me when I, when I chatted with her when I did the speech up at the museum, that he used to walk around with a little notebook, and when he would go someplace and he really liked it, he would make a little notation about it, and she would find him counting steps. You know, he'd find a street that he liked, and he would figure out how wide the street was. So he approached the park very much the same way, and I, and I really started to appreciate that Disneyland was his souvenir bucket from his world travels. He would see something someplace, he'd like it, and he would try to figure out a way of bringing it here in the park. So For me, it was just the, I understood these principles. Then I started realizing that a lot of the principles were taking place right at Disneyland. And then that made it very easy to explain to other people. Because when you talk about mixed use, for instance, it's like Main Street at Disneyland. People lived up above the stores, and there were the stores below. Oh, I get it. Okay, now you know what mixed use (laughs) development is. So it it became a very easy way of translating some of these complex ideas to to people. So they sounded familiar. Okay. i got to say, I've never heard Disneyland referred to as Walt's souvenir bucket from his travels before. But I like that. Well, you look at it. I mean, you know, he went to Zermont, Switzerland for Third Man on the Mountain. He really, really liked the matter and he thought it was beautiful. So, what did he do? He brought it home with him, you know, the petrified tree in Frontierland. For some God only knows reason, he ended up buying that for his wife, which I don't think he really did. He bought it for himself uh-huh. and he put that in here. So, yeah, it, it really does represent a lot of his travels. The um, Remember the old people mover track? Remember how the. Um, how you loaded it by a moving turntable, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. He saw that when he was on a trip in Switzerland. He saw the moving turntable, and then that's what gave him the idea of, of how to do the station for the people mover. So he was he, he looked a lot. He saw the monorail was the ultimate example of a souvenir. Right. He was driving through Germany one day, and his wife and he went to one town where they had a swinging uh, uh, monorail, and Lillian didn't like that. She got a little ill on it. But he was fascinated by monorails because there's a history in Los Angeles of building monorails in the 50s. Hmm. There, was a, there was a lot of different opportunities to try to do that. And they were driving down a road one day and all of a sudden this thing goes flying above the road. You know you know the story. And he's like whoa, what is that? And drove off to the side of the road to find out. So he brought that home as a souvenir. Uh, the, uh, the sky buckets, the skyway. He saw a ski lift while he was in Europe and decided that that could be Tinkerbell's Tinkerbell's pixie dust. So he brought that back and turned it into a ride. So yeah, there's there's lots of little bits around here are things that he saw somewhere else and thought, that'd be neat in my park. Huh, interesting. Now we've talked about all the different little pieces here in the park and about you growing up and, and coming in. You had mentioned yeah. the Carousel of Progress. Yes. And I know from reading your first book, Walt and the Promise of Progress City, that that really started to develop that fascination. So let's talk about that first book. Sure. Uh, why is it? Why did you decide to write Walt in the Promise of Progress City? At the time that I wrote the thing, it was when the uh, the economy had crashed, and as an urban planner, there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of work. <laughs> About fifty percent of the people in the business were ultimately let go, um, and I, I lasted quite a ways through the recession. But ultimately, the firm that I worked for also kind of folded as well. Um, but at the time I started writing, I was writing I was writing columns for Mice Chat. Uh, I was doing my own little blog, and I, I was really getting fascinated about 
putting together all of the stuff that I've done with all these community workshops that I've run, and then trying to combine that with the fascination of Walt Disney. And and in a sense, that has the book is really two books. If you're an urban planner, it's a great way of going through very complex urban planning ideas and concepts, and giving you real world ways of explaining why they work so well. If you're a Disney fan. It gives you the tools to be able to tell your friends and neighbors that you're going to Walt Disney World again. What's up with that? You're going to Disneyland again. Weren't you just there? You can now intellectually explain to them why it's such a wonderful place and why all these urban patterns come together. And the place has this architecture of reassurance, as John Hench called it, where you come in and you immediately get a different mindset and you feel great and you want to be here and you relax and you, and you become a bit more of yourself. So that was really the genesis of the book. It was a kind of way of combining the two things. And it, it was really an eye-opener for me, too, because I really started to appreciate just how good Walt and, and, and Marvin Davis and a lot of the really early Imagineers were about creating a sense of place and being able to do it in a way where, if you really think about it, very little that's here is originally here. Almost everything in this park has changed at one point or another. It's fascinating, but it still feels very nostalgic, and people feel like, oh, God, nothing's changed at all. So it was, it was kind of a nice meshing, and it just got me much, much, much deeper into the, the whole idea of what the parks are about and their influence on our mindset when we go home. Okay. Um, so for people who haven't read it yet, but they're going to after they listen to this, and they're going to go out Great. and buy it. Please do. Please do. It's available on Amazon. <laughs> right, right. And I'm going to put links in the show notes and the whole shot. So very good. there. Um Kind of what is it about? Well, Walt the Promise of Progress City was uh, as really as a feasibility study. And what it was, was for those who went to Carousel of Progress when it was running here in California, when the show ended, the show didn't end. You just didn't leave the theater like you do in Florida. Instead, you went up this wonderful speed ramp to the City of Progress City. It was this giant model, a 6,900-square-foot model of, of basically what Walt wanted to build in Florida. You know, Walt was really a big believer in models. He felt that there was a great way of understanding the rides that he was building. And everything that he did, he insisted on having models for it. And he wanted to have a model for a city, so he quietly had his guys build this model without telling anybody that that's what he wanted to build with all this property he had in Florida. Well, you know, I'm like, what, eight, nine years old, something like that, <laughs> seeing this thing. And it's a 6,500-square-foot model with, like, 2,500 moving cars and 20,000 trees and all. I just, I was fascinated. So when I was trying to figure out how to structure the story for the Walton the Promise of Progress City... It seemed to me that that model was the place to start. And I, and I really asked myself the question, could Walt have ever built his version of Epcot in Florida? And I approached it like I would my work, which is a feasibility study, which, which means kind of working backwards. If this is the vision of where you are, how did you get to that vision? What were the components so you can start to do the economic analysis? And that's a process that was developed really by a guy named Harrison Buzz Price. Mm -hmm. And for people that are listening to this podcast, you probably all know who he is. He's the guy who literally founded the location for Disneyland, Disney World. Tokyo Disneyland. He worked with Walt and Roy on over 150 projects. And I got a chance to meet Buzz Price and interview him extensively. And he was one of only a handful of people who worked on the actual Epcot project. He did ran all the numbers for it. And we sat down for many hours talking about what Walt's vision was, what Walt was trying to accomplish, and why he was trying to accomplish it. And and by the end of the thing, I was thoroughly convinced that they should have built Walt's version of Epcot, that it would have been very successful, and, and it was because it was built on great urban planning principles, all combined in one place with that special Walt Disney flair, and especially the way he connects things with transportation devices, it would have been just absolutely splendid. So the book works backwards from there, but by working backwards, I had to learn about Walt's interest in three-dimensional design. So that goes back to the studio in Burbank, which was unlike any movie studio in Hollywood. It was the forerunner of the high-tech office campuses that we have today with food and restaurants and exercise gym and everything was air-conditioned and it was like a college campus. He did the same thing with his home in Holmby Hills. He did it with Disneyland. And then he ultimately wanted to do it with three projects that I, I get into extensively in the book. The city of Epcot, uh, Mineral King, which was a ski resort that he wanted to build in the, Mineral, in the Mineral King Valley up in Sierra Nevada Mountains, and the City of the Arts College, which ultimately became CalArts, which actually did happen. Mm -hmm. And he had dedicated really the last few years of his life on those three projects more than anything else. So the book chronicles those three projects in depth that's never been done before. Okay. Interesting. And where we're sitting is not far from the 
the one piece of Mineral King that really did survive and made it out here for a while uh-huh. and now well, has right. been yeah, replaced. Yeah. <laughs> but then even in this uh, this restaurant, there's several tributes to it. Yeah. We're, we're not far from what used to be Country Bear Jamboree. Oh, you're going to make bring tears to my eyes. That was just so wonderful. <laughs> now, now they have this, like, honey attic over there that's constantly... The, the, the only ride that has a five-minute wait on a day where there's, like, 60,000 people in this park. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, Country Bear Jamboree was a great example of it. I, I Ron Miller, who was really focused on the Mineral King project, ultimately was... Uh, Going to run, run ultimately to run the Disney company for a little while. Uh, Ron told me what that uh, that the idea behind Mineral King uh, was that it was supposed to be the ski resort that was built for Walt's wife Lillian. She loved the mountains. She really loved the mountains. But ski resorts were generally dirty places, and at night there wasn't much to do. And Walt wanted to create a thing that for all families to come up to. So if you're a kid at a ski resort, there's not a lot to do. So he wanted to create a show that he could change out to the seasons which they ultimately did do with Country Bear Jamboree, and I, I love it. I, I miss that show a lot here. So it, it is one of my reasons I like going back to Florida for the now the Reader's Digest version of the show. <laughs> right, I feel the same way. So, um, But at least they did, when they kind of redid Hungry Bear Restaurant not too long ago, they sort of brought in a lot of references and touches connecting it to Country Bear Jamboree. Yeah, and if you noticed over the last few years, they've been bringing out the Country Bear characters at Disneyland a lot more now, too. Which right. I think is very fascinating. So there's obviously there's obviously something there that I think people are missing, and that's why the characters are still popular out here. Yeah, I think you're right. So um, now, as you were talking about Walt and the Promise of Progress City, you mentioned something that I think is just a fascinating concept, uh, which is a sense of place. Yes. And, and how Walt uh, here and then in, in his concepts for Epcot and everything was had that sense of place that he was creating. That was very important to him. Yes. Yeah. How does that affect people in the environment, so in this case, the guests. Oh, it's, it's amazing. That is really one of the revolutionary things that Walt had done. I mean, our expectations for public spaces now are completely influenced by Walt Disney. When you go to a central business district or a downtown now, they're always now as hyper-clean as they can get. There's a lot more security than there used to be. Wayfinding signage is usually a lot better, and that's all because of Disneyland. And what the way that it was explained to me through John Hench was, in the real world, there's what we call messy vitality. This is a concept that uh, an architect named Robert Venturi came up with. Mm-hmm. And the idea of messy vitality is not everything completely lines up. And because of that, when you walk through public spaces, you, you're aware, you're alive, you're, you're in a sense, you're being aware of your location and what's surrounding you. And that's great. That's great. It makes you engaged with the environment. But if you have too much messy vitality, it starts to become uncomfortable, threatening even. What they tried to do at Disneyland for the first time, really, was to create, as John Hench said, as I said earlier, the architecture of reassurance. And the idea there is you remove all of the visual contradictions. You take everything away that would make people tense. And you do that by having a story that's either implicit or explicit of the environment that you walk around and everything supports the story. So that includes the building materials, how you feel the buildings, what they look like at the ground floor, and how they immerse you. And this idea of the lack of visual contradictions, it tends to change your mindset and you become more relaxed, more in tune with yourself. It's it's sort of the explanation as to why people wear really silly hats wear at their parks. You would never wear it outside of the park, but you see these dads wearing you know, like goofy ears because the mindset of the, the, the architecture of reassurance, and I'll give you a, a quick story that really I thought summed it up. Walt Disney was walking through the park with Reverend Billy Graham, and, which he always did. He always loved taking famous people, walking them through the park. They were walking through, and then uh, Billy Graham turned to Walt, and he said one day, you know, this is a really good fantasy you've got here, Walt. This is really good. And you'd think that Walt would say, well, thank you, Reverend Graham. That, that's terrific. Apparently, that wasn't Walt's reaction. It was actually quite opposite of that. Walt was actually mad. He was very livid. He got right in Reverend Graham's face, and he stood up right in front of his face, and he said, you know what? This is the real world. The fantasy is out there. In here, people come, they relax, they communicate, they talk with their families. John Hench even said once that coming to Disneyland gives you permission to talk to strangers, mm-hmm. which was, I think was a great famous line. And, and he said, out there, out there is the fantasy. Because out there, people are built on their hatred and their prejudices. When they come here, all that slips away. And I thought, you know... Walt was right. (laughs) It really does. And I think that that's the reason why people keep coming back to the parks, because it's not the fantasy of coming here, but it's the reassurance 
that things are clean, people are friendly, that the world is spinning correctly. It's also why people... Here's the Mark Twain. Yep. <laughs> it's also the reason why when there are small, little changes, people take them way too seriously here. <laughs> because Walt gave us ownership, and that ownership was to protect that architecture of reassurance. So when something stands out, if you see something that's not supposed to be there or a light bulb burnt out, People freak out because their expectations are set so much higher than they are for any other place. So that's that's where the urban planning, I think, and the whole theme park thing really came together for me. Okay. Probably going to upset a few people by asking this question, but do you think that those expectations that people have set are unreasonably high in some cases? Oh, no. I think that when they, if you look at the plaque at the front, Walt says, this is your land. I think that he, he set it up originally that this was... Uh, he set it up originally that this was the thing that he um, that he wanted to do. You know, in fact, I'm I'm, I'm going to be doing a talk uh, May 31st at the Walt Disney Family Museum, uh, which we'll be announcing shortly. Which is about this idea of uh, Disneyland, the fan-driven time machine. Hmm. That that it was the fans that are the ones who really preserve the heritage of the park for the first 11 years, and through websites and books and magazines. It was fans who took ownership and created this this memorable, really created this place that people live for so much, unlike any other public space in the United States. And it was driven by the fans. And the company sooner or later figured out that, hey, there's some money to be made on this. <laughs> but it wasn't the Walt Disney Company or Walt Disney Productions that really started this fetish for the park. It was fans that did that. And I think that that's amazing because I can't really think of any other place in the United States that quite has this auxiliary industry of fans <laughs> preserving the history of the place. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, is there a point where uh, the, the the fan desire to preserve and the company desire to change things has to kind of tip in one direction or the other, especially tip in the direction of doing something different? Like, I know there was yep. a huge outcry about not too far from here, the, um, the Court of Angels. Yes, yeah. And I think, in that case, my opinion, a justifiable outcry. Yes, one of those special, quiet, preserved yeah. spaces that we're losing. Yeah, interesting. It's the, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, and in the Disneyland story, I, I think that you get a sense, because that's written like a biography. And so a biography is pushed by internal and external events that force people to take certain actions, right? And so that's how the book's structured. And although I, I talk about California Adventure, I never I don't get into the design of California Adventure. Another book, maybe or something. I don't know. Because <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a completely different story. Right. Um, I think that Walt was the very first person to talk about change in the park. And the famous story that goes with that is he was standing in front of the Jungle Cruise one day. And he was leaning against a trash can, and especially in the early days, he would stand out in the park all the time and talk to people. He really believed in that. In fact, he always stood in the lines. He never went backstage to go on the rides, because he felt if the line isn't good enough for him, then it's not good enough for his guests. Mm-hmm. So he'll stand in the line and learn about it as well. He was standing in front of the Jungle Cruise one day, and a couple people passed by, and they, they said, you want to go on the Jungle Cruise? And they go, oh, no, I've been on it before. And that's when Walt realized that, like a show, like a live theater show, he really needed to keep plussing things. He needed to keep adding things. And, and he was a very big believer in adding it. If it worked, great. And if it didn't work, just tear it out. Mickey Mouse Club Circus, he really wanted to have a circus in here. It was a complete bomb. They tore it out. Um, he did that a lot. He, he would find something. They would try it. If it worked, great. they keep it. If it didn't work, they would tear it out. So he would be the first person to say that there is a that it wasn't a museum. But I did kind of learn while writing the Disneyland story that there there is a certain set of values that Walt taught Disneyland because the premise of the book is it's a biography and mm-hmm. Walt had three children. He had Diane, Sharon, and Disneyland. And he didn't get to see Disneyland grow up until he was 11 year, until he was 11 years old, but he did teach it good values. And I think that when the park follows those good values, immersive environment, good storytelling, the lack of visual contradictions, that sort of stuff, in general, the park does really well. And whenever it doesn't do really well, it's amazing. It's almost always because they didn't follow those traditions. Uh, you can do new stuff within those traditions quite well, but that's that. I think that was the big difference, and, and, and that's what's still in everybody's brain. I don't think, at Disneyland especially, I don't think the fans take it too seriously. I think that when the park does something that's really bonehead and they speak up, that's what makes this place so charming. If mm-hmm. they stop speaking up, this would be like almost any amusement other amusement park. It's just a place you go, you spend money, you don't really care. 
They don't do this at Universal Studios. They don't complain generally when something's torn out or at Six Flags Magic Mountain, even Knott's Berry Farm that much. But boy, there is a cry, and that's a very <laughs> unique thing about this place. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. Yeah. So, now, you've mentioned visual contradictions a couple of times and the lack of visual contradictions. Yes. But there's a castle at the end of a turn-of-a-century Main Street, and if you look from another distance, there's an alpine mountain behind it. Yes. Why does that not feel like a visual contradiction? Well, that goes down to an urban planning principle, the idea of contrast. And it's just really, really done, con- well done contrast. And why does it not stand out? It's because of the, it's because of when you walk on Main Street, you never see Main Street until you go through the tunnel. Right. And you never see all of Main Street until you're all the way through the tunnel. And you never see the castle until you've already been immersed and, uh, and accept that you're in the 1890s on Town Square. And then off in the distance is this absolute contradiction of a medieval castle. But from an urban planning point of view, it, it works well because it's a view terminus. It's at the end of the street. Okay. And you can put eclectic buildings at the end of streets. That's why in a lot of older cities, grand churches were at the end of these kind of streets. Hmm. So in that sense, it fits very well. <coughs> the contrast to the old-fashioned Main Street is so sharp that it actually works, and, and it becomes what Walt called a weenie. And, and, and the Disney historian Jim Corcus explained the story to me, um, and that was that Walt would come back from the studio late at night, and he'd have a hot dog, and he'd go to his dog. He'd sleep, usually sneak in through the kitchen late at night so he wouldn't bug his wife, and he'd pull out a hot dog, and he'd eat one for himself, and then he'd wave it around in front of his dog, and he'd get his dog to do tricks. And that's because he would show him the weenie. And that's what the castle is. It's the weenie. It is so unusual. It is such a contrast. It just draws you like big fingers going this way, like a big beckoning (laughs) hand come this way. And so that's a weenie. And then when the park first opened, there was a weenie for Tomorrowland, which was the clock of the world at the front and then the uh, 75-foot TWA moonliner towards the back. Mm -hmm. So you'd want to walk towards that. And then the 67 version, it was the the, uh, rocket jets up on top of the, the theme building. Fantasyland, it was the castle. Uh, Frontierland, it was the stockade gate. And then beyond that, the infinite wilderness where the Mark Twain was. So that would drive you forward. And of course, in Adventureland, the, the weenie is the bathrooms. And that's because if you knew what was in Adventureland, it wouldn't be much of an adventure now, would it? So, right, right. So, in Florida, it's different. It's the Swiss Family Treehouse. Mm. So this idea of weenies, this idea of the beckoning hand to draw people forward into other spaces yet is yet another one of those patterns that they do so well. Okay, interesting. And since we're talking about Disneyland and about uh, you know, the Disneyland story, uh-huh. let's talk about the writing of that one for <laughs> yeah. a little bit. So we kind of jumped into the content. Uh, so you'd written this one book, Walton, The Promise of Progress City. Uh, what was it that made you decide that this other book needed to be written and that you were the person that needed to write it? You know, it's not like there's no lack of shortage of uh, Disney history books, so it was one of those kind of things that I had to sort of figure out what it is I wanted to say and uh, and why it is that I wanted to say it first. Once again, I have a real passion for the park. Doing a lot of research and the talks and stuff for the Progress City book really inspired me, and, and I could tell you exactly when this book came up. Uh, I, it, was, it was a January. I gave the talk about Mineral King in San Francisco at the Walt Disney Family Museum. The talk was over with, for those who've been to the museum, you'll know what I'm talking about. Have you been to the museum? I have. Okay, yeah. so remember the, the Disneyland model that was and never will be. Yes. Uh, something Tony Baxter and others had worked on, which was a model that's at the base of Gallery 9. That's everything that Walt either had in Disneyland or he wanted to have in Disneyland that can be traced back to him. And I was standing downstairs looking at the model for a good 20 minutes with Warner Weiss from Yesterland, and we were just talking. And it really hit me then, this idea that, that Walt built the park because he didn't have another child and he wanted something that was like a child, something he can kind of mold and change and grow up with and, and, and have that kind of fun. And that's when the hook hit me, that this thing should be written as a biography. Then I started doing the research, and I I decided that um, there needed to be a Disneyland book that was well-vetted. So the thing has like 840 footnotes and Mm. six pages of a selected bibliography. So I wanted to get the facts down, because there's a lot of mythology, a lot of myth-making that's out there. And then when you start diving into the facts, the story just got better and better and better. I just started learning all sorts of things about the how and the why and the pushes and stuff. I was also watching as an author, you'll appreciate this, I was also watching a lot of Ken Burns at the time. Um, I I would finish writing for a while, and then I'd watch like an hour of a Ken Burns show, because I thought that Ken Burns had the ability to tell long-term stories 
in such a way that was very riveting and where a time where you'll take a little bit of a story and you'll tell it and you'll wrap it up but there's other stories like the Haunted Mansion the Pirates of the Caribbean that are wound throughout the entire book because it took a long time to get those things done so mm-hmm. so that that was it it was it was really a case of sitting down and then to make sure that I wasn't crazy I, I wrote up a treatment sent it to Jeff Curdy another profound Disney historian who ended up writing the forward for the book and said, am I crazy? Is this a dumb idea to write another Disneyland history book? And he said, no, you know, you, you actually have got the right hook. You've got a different way of telling the story. And, and so far it's proven out to be a very successful book. So I'm very proud of it. Good. That's great. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing yet, but the parts I've read, I really enjoy. It's, it's dense. There's a lot of there's a lot of information there. Uh-huh. I, I will tell you, and for us older folks, bring your reading glasses. <laughs> that's true. The print is a little on the small side. But but it's it's a huge book. It's it's very close to almost being twice the length of Progress City, in fact. So mm-hmm. um, so that you know that's that's how the book got to its length. Yeah, and it actually answered a question for me that unfortunately I didn't read it two months before my book came out. <laughs> yeah. Because there was something in mind that I wrote about and I said I don't really know exactly why this is the way it is uh-huh. but hopefully somebody can tell me and then I read in your book and heard uh, the interviews and things you'd done where you talked about it and that is the sales in New Orleans Square oh yeah yeah that was the, <laughs> well you know that was one of those kind of really trippy discoveries and, and for those who haven't read the book yet um, you know part of the idea here is why did they do things and one of the things you learn early on with Walt is he was a very practical guy you know, the reason the Matterhorn exists isn't necessarily the bobsleds. It was really because he had a tower for the Skyway he wanted to hide. Mm-hmm. And and the same thing happened with, funny enough, with New Orleans Square. Um, the, the park was very successful. Land values around the park were definitely rising to the point where if you really wanted to make money, you needed to build a high-rise. And there's a whole section in the book that talks about the high-rise battles, and I won't get into a lot of detail here. But it's really fascinating, and it really had a huge influence on not only Disneyland, but Anaheim in general. But one of those is Jack Rather, who owned the Disneyland Hotel, wanted to monetize his property even more, so he wanted to build a tower. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was very exciting to him. And Walt made a condition. He said he could only build the tower if I cannot see it inside of Disneyland. So he had the architecture team float balloons to what was supposed to be the height of the tower, and they stood in Disneyland to see if you could see the balloon. And the one thing that's really never moved here was the dock for the Mark Twain. It's been pretty much the same place mm-hmm. at the same elevation since the park's opening. So if you stood on that, if you stood on that, you look over, you can't see the Disneyland Hotel. Even today, you cannot see the Disneyland Hotel. And that's because New Orleans Square was designed for two reasons. One of them was a travel souvenir. Where was Lillian's favorite city in the United States? She loved New Orleans. But it was kind of dirty, and she didn't like that. So Walt figured, because he was always trying to find excuses to get his wife to come join him at the park, because this was kind of his thing, was he was going to rebuild New Orleans Square, make it very clean, and then put a, um, an antique shop so that his wife can either buy antiques, and if she didn't like it, she could sell it there, or if she wanted to buy antiques, she could buy it from her own store. That was the one-of-a-kind shop. Mm-hmm. So New Orleans Square was designed for two reasons. It was to give Lillian an excuse to come to the park, and it was designed as a much larger berm to hide the Disneyland Hotel. Okay. And, and I was able to verify it through blueprints. I talked to the architect who designed the Disneyland Hotel. He told me that was the case. Um, Don Ballard from the from the great Disneyland history books, the Disneyland Hotel books, showed me the photo of the balloon test. That was it was a real eye opener that they do that sort of thing. Wow! And then the sails are there to hide equipment on that, the to rooftops? hide the mechanicals that are on the, the rooftop. That's right, and also to imply that there's water on the other side because if you remember, New Orleans is in between water. Right. So they needed to establish that you were on one side of New Orleans and there was another side. Right. So that, that was part of the thing, too. And that would be a visual contradiction, because if you didn't see the sails, it wouldn't be New Orleans, because New Orleans was famous at the time for being able to see over the city and seeing the waterways on both sides. Okay. Okay, I actually got it right in the book, then, Good, even yeah. though I didn't know for sure the reason it seemed like the most logical reason. Yeah. And then I didn't know about the placement of New Orleans Square yeah. when I wrote it. That was, that was, it was strange, because it wasn't for Pirates of the Caribbean, because that was going to be a walkthrough, and it wasn't really for Haunted Mansion, because that was going to be a walkthrough. Mm-hmm. You know, it, those, those were it wasn't because of the rides that drove. It was something different. Okay. Uh, you know, I've noticed as we're talking that uh-huh. there seems to be, in a lot of the stuff Walt did, uh, two things that drove most of that. Uh-huh. One is he wanted it. Yeah. And two is Lillian liked a version of it, but it was dirty, and so he <laughs> wanted to build a clean one. Those, you know, I think there's a, there's, a lot, there's a lot to it. She wasn't really fond of the idea that he wanted to build an amusement park, and there is, of course, a famous quote of, why do you want to do that? It's going to be so dirty, and well, oh, mine will be different. Um, 
so no, she wasn't. She was. This was. This was definitely his thing. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, he, he loved his wife, and he wanted to do things where she would come. And and he really was the big thing with the grandchildren. The fact that the that was always the great excuse to come down for Lillian's because the grandchildren and she would go and you know look in Frontierland. They used to be. They used to sell Pendleton fabrics mm-hmm. because Walt and Lillian really liked Pendleton, and Lillian loved Pendleton. So they put a Pendleton store specifically for that. I've, now this one I've not been able to track down, but I had heard the rumor that the reason that Maxwell's um, lingerie was on Main Street, the Wizard of Bra store, was that was a store that Lillian frequented as well. But I, I haven't been able to confirm that one. Okay. So that one's not in the book, but that's my speculative story for any kind of an update to it. Gotcha. I'm still trying to track that one down. <laughs> gotcha. So speaking of things that are not in the book then, um, even with the size of this book, yeah, and like we said, you know, it's not that much larger physically than Walt in the Promise of Progress City, but number of words, it's almost twice as many. Yes. So there's a lot in there, but every author has to cut something. Yes. <laughs> so what was the hardest thing to cut from the book? You know, I had to do... I, there were there were two things that I did not talk about extensively in the book. I do talk extensively about the different opportunities for expansion that Disneyland was going through, whether it be the California Living Project in 1961... Um, which was going to be a theme park based around the state of California <laughs> at Disneyland in 1961. Go figure. Um, uh, you'll read about that in the book. I'll leave you on that one. Right. Uh, so there was that. There were the the north of the Disneyland Hotel was a 40 acre strawberry field, and they were a, there were a lot of looks at doing something over there uh, about doing like a, like an Epcot kind of thingy over there. And I get into some of the other expansions, the Port Disney. There's probably more about Port Disney, which was the project in Long Beach and Westcott that's in any book right now as well. Mm -hmm. And I talk about the genesis of California Adventure, but I decided relatively early on not to talk about the design process like I did for Disneyland for California Adventure. And the reason why is... It was, burnt, it was born by different parents, and for a lot different reason. I do talk about the Aspen Charette. That's where the concept for California came about. California Adventure came about, and I do talk about some of the violations of those principles I talked about earlier that were manifest on purpose over a California Adventure. Hmm. But I don't get really into the design of it as much. I think that that's a different story, and I got to talk to different people to get that one. The other one that was very hard to cut was making the decision, how much about entertainment do I talk about? Because this place is an entertainment mecca. Mm-hmm. And, and I really honestly think that there is an utterly fascinating book out there that talks about the parades and the fireworks shows and the different, like, the Mardi Gras festivals and all that kind of stuff and that creepy bicentennial show with the puppet, you know, the people <laughs> with the big heads and stuff. Um, there's a good book out there that somebody needs to write about the entertainment, but that was beyond my expertise. And so... I don't really get into the entertainment much other than when it made physical changes. So I talk about Fantasmic because it changed the island, that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. but don't get into entertainment very much. Okay. Because that would have been, that would have put the thing way over the top. <laughs> right. So like I say, I haven't read the whole thing. So do you talk much about the Indian village? I do. I do. I, all the Indian villages, the three okay. or four of them where the thing was moved. You know, it was, it was over there and then over there and then over there. And, then, and I even get into the little details like, you know, for the first couple of years, the Indian war canoes were always piloted by Indians. And and I have a funny quote from Van France, who's the training guy, about how he found a lot of Indians couldn't actually row canoes, and he had to train them, so <laughs> I think it's kind of scurry. Um, but yeah, a lot of the little things that are like that, uh, the, you know, we're sitting, in this, we're sitting in a spot that represents a lot of change, because if you think about the railroad track, it's like a belt, and whenever they needed to, they needed to expand, they moved the belt out. So really, literally, in Frontierland, the Frontierland, the train track has been moved, I think, 75, almost 100 feet from its original location. Same thing towards the north end of the park as well. Uh-huh. Uh, so the train tracks have moved, and I try to document that because that really influenced where things got placed. Anything that talks about the physical change of the park and the how and why it got there, I, I try to address. Okay, I figured that was most likely in there. Yeah. So, and as long as we're talking about pieces of the park, yeah. and not to put you on the spot too <laughs> much, and whenever people ask me questions, about my book and you know about some specific thing in there like that's why I wrote it down so I don't have to remember all of it (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs) you know but we always try to remember as much as we can of what we Uh wrote Uh, not far from here there's a fountain that sits right outside the haunted mansion okay Um, I've heard it kind of unofficially referred to as the transitions fountain 
because it's kind of the transition point between the part of the park that Walt had the greatest hand in, which would uh-huh. be Pirates of the Caribbean, substantially completed before yeah. he passed, and then where it started, he started to have less of direct influence, being the Haunted Mansion, which he had a lot in that, but it opened three years after he passed. Yeah. And then uh, Crater Country at the time was the first new land to open yeah. after he passed. And so it was kind of the dividing point between Walt and after Walt oh, wow. for I, a long time. I, I've actually never heard that story before, so, so I, I couldn't verify it. I mean, okay. it, it sounds it sounds fairly reasonable. I mean, he envisioned, he envisioned what was Magnolia Park that was back there, mm-hmm. you know, and, and stuff like that. That, that's interesting. I, I, I mean, I, I can kind of believe that. I never found any evidence. It didn't show up in any of the documentation that I had had. And Lord only knows, <laughs> Lord only knows I learned, looked through a lot of documents to get this <laughs> stuff out of there. You know, I will tell you, I hadn't heard that one, but I will tell you a funny story that I have verified. And this one is factual. Okay. That is about the same area. And that was that um, in 1960, uh, Bill Evans, who was the genius behind all the plantings and the trees and everything in the park. In fact, that is, to me, in many ways, what makes Disneyland different than any place else. This use of trees was never heard of at amusement parks or even World's Fairs at the time. Mm-hmm. And that was, to a great extent, because of Bill Evans, who was the landscape architect for Walt. And he was driving through downtown Los Angeles one day. And there's a little park called Pershing Square in downtown Los Angeles. And they were it had 30 little ficus trees planted around the outside. And there were eight big ficus trees in the middle and they were changing the park around like they do so often on that park and they they were removing the 30 small ficus trees boxing them up and sending them someplace but of the eight big ficus trees they were just going to cut them down in fact they cut one of them down and and all of a sudden bill evans who's just a tree hungry guy like (laughs) i'll take them i'll take them so they made a deal and he was able to take the trees he boxed them up they're huge trees boxed them up moved them down here Parked him behind where New Orleans Square was, where the empty, where the empty shell was going to be for the haunted mansion. And Walt's like, "What are you doing with these trees? I don't need more trees at the moment." And he's like, "No, trust me, trust me. We're going to want these trees." <laughs> so when they redesigned New Orleans Square, the seven ficus trees were planted all along New Orleans Square, and they're still here. Really, the ficus trees that you see out all along the big, huge, round kind of ficus trees. Those are the seven original ficus trees from Pershing Square that Bill Evans had. The Italian cypress trees that are in front of the haunted mansion were the six Italian cypress trees that used to be at the former entrance of the old version of Tomorrowland before they redid that in 67 and we're sitting out here towards the back edge of the berm most of the trees that you see around the outside berm were trees rescued from the Caltrans freeway project when they were uh, making the I-5 freeway come down this way <laughs> so I was able to document some famous trees so the ones back here were from the a lot of these were from the freeway construction that's where by the way the story came about where um, a colorblind guy was tagging trees and then and, and was running trees over. That actually is not a true story. I was able to verify that was not a true story. That was a made-up story. Okay. It came from the fact that Bill Evans had a full-time guy following the tractors around as they were tearing down the trees for the freeway, and he was the guy that was tagging the trees because the Caltrans people were the ones destroying the trees. And it was very important for Bill to try to save these, and Caltrans was happy to get rid of them because they were just going to tear them down anyways and just cut them up. So they were happy. You know, Bill, you want to take them? Fine, go ahead. And it wasn't even charging people for the for the trees either. Uh-huh. Um, one of my favorite trees is when you're on the hippo pool the next time uh-huh. on the on the jungle. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A special thank you to Sam Genoway for being my guest, and to you for listening. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, whether it's writing a book, blogging, writing or performing music, art, whatever, and you want to tell me about it and why it matters to you, I want to hear from you. Email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY anytime, 24 hours a day. I also still want to talk to and hear from people who have worked for Disney. So if you've worked for the Walt Disney Company in any capacity and you'd like to share a positive story, again, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, let's talk. Also, if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience, and you've had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or you've had any special Disney experience you want to share, 
or you want to give a compliment or a thank you for anything Disney's done. Maybe you have a special memory from growing up and going to the parks. That would be a fun one to hear from, especially given the context of what we've been talking about with Sam. So once again, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY, story, and tell me about your experience. Now before the usual wrap-up, the news I mentioned before the interview about Faith in the Magic Kingdom. I mentioned in the previous episode that I was working on that book throughout 2013 and released it in mid-November, but there was one piece I still wanted done, to have it as an audiobook. Well, the audiobook is now done and available on audible.com, so you can now get it as a paperback, an ebook for your Kindle or Kindle app, or as an audiobook. In fact, I'm thinking that in the next episode, I just may have a giveaway of a copy or two of it, so stay tuned for details. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. The more ratings and reviews the show has, the better it shows up in lists and searches so it's easier for people to find. I'll admit it does take a couple minutes or so to do one of those, but it's really helpful. So if you enjoy the show, please take that couple of minutes and go leave a rating or a review. It really would be helpful and I'd really appreciate it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Like in this one, I'm going to have links for you for the Amazon pages for both of Sam's books. Please like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash storiesofmagic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google+. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic, too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.